You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 30th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hamas ponders a ceasefire proposal, but is Israel interested? Italy outlines a new deal for Africa, and could the traditional Parisian Freudeur be a victim of technology? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Rebecca Tinsley and Ivor Gaber will discuss the day's big stories and we'll have live music from Atlanta's own Blackberry Smoke. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Ivor Gaber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex, and by Rebecca Tinsley, journalist and human rights campaigner, founder of Network for Africa. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Um, Ivor, you, first of all, I believe have been writing things in lesser journals than Monocle, but we will nevertheless allow you to briefly plug them. Well, the brief plug is for the, the journal is a weekly and a monthly in this country. Most weekly in this country called the New European, an excellent newspaper, not on a par with Monocle, obviously close. Um, I, it was last week. It was Holocaust Memorial Day. I wrote a piece based on a book by a friend of mine, if I could plug it, um, about um, Britain's unsuccessful attempts to prosecute Nazi war criminals after the Second World War. The total number we succeeded in prosecuting was one. Uh, your, your use of the word unsuccessful does rather make it sound like the British were even trying, but the book suggests that that wasn't really the case. They were very trying, but that's not <laughs> what you meant. Um, it was a mixture of um, legal, I won't say inertia, but legal pedantry, um, underlying establishment anti-Semitism, possibly, and the fact that some of these people were prove, proved useful to be spies mm. against the the Soviets in the east in Eastern Europe. So there was a bit of a, uh, let's just get on with it. Um, but overall, um, compared to other countries in Europe and even Australia, our success in prosecuting Nazi war crimes was appalling. Mixture of factors, difficult to point a single finger, but the overall result is an embarrassment for this country. Um, listeners can read that review in the New European and indeed should, but just quickly, Ivor, the book is called... The Reckoning. Oh, no, I've forgotten it. I, I, <laughs> goodness me, he's going to kill me. I'll come back to it in the programme if I get a chance. Uh, you shall. Um, uh, Rebecca, we often do update our listeners on the recent doings of Network for Africa. What, what have you been up to? Well, um, the little NGO that I founded 20 years ago called Waging Peace, uh, this was after I came back from Sudan, from Darfur, at the height of the killing, um, We recently persuaded the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court uh, to come to London to meet a hundred of our Darfur diaspora survivors of said genocide. And to our amazement, two weeks ago he turned up, he listened to them. They persuaded him um, to go to Chad, to the refugee camps, to talk to survivors of the Darfur genocide that is happening right now. So we were amazed enough by that uh, to have succeeded and to get this man there in a, in a sweaty tent listening to people tell of the horrific things that have happened to them. And then yesterday, 
the same ICC chief prosecutor, turned up at the UN Security Council and told them all why they should be taking this seriously. So a nice victory for our, our Darfuris. If I could just get the plug, Safe, <laughs> Safe Haven by John Silverman. It's the United Kingdom's investigation into, into Nazi collaborators and the failure of justice. Thank you. Uh, well, while we are plugging things, uh, Rebecca's mention of Sudan does enable me to mention that the most recent edition of the Foreign Desk takes a long look at Sudan and at the perils of ignoring conflicts such as Sudan's and those elsewhere in Africa. But we will start in the Middle East and with reports that Hamas leader Ismail Hanya is considering details of a ceasefire proposal hammered out in Paris at the weekend by representatives of Egypt, Qatar, the United States and Israel, though not Hamas. Advanced leaks suggest that the conditions include the release of perhaps 35 of the hostages still held by Hamas in return for a six-week pause in fighting and the release of thousands of Palestinians presently held in Israeli prisons. As we go to air, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu sounds unenthused, ruling out an IDF withdrawal from Gaza or any large-scale prisoner release. Um, Ivor, on the basis of Netanyahu's unenthusiasm, is this likely to go anywhere? Well, it's very difficult to read the particular tea leaves here because we're hearing ambiguous noises from both sides. Um, Whereas the Hamas negotiators in Egypt are looking at the plan, Hamas representatives in Paris are rejecting it. Similarly, Netanyahu is saying no, but the Americans who are negotiating... I suppose on Israel's behalf, you might say, in Egypt, are saying this is a real, this is a real p- potential deal maker. Um, there is. I'll make two two brief observations. In these negotiations in the past, well, we've had one that led to the the brief truce. There were these contradictory messages coming out, mm. and it's all part of the game. But on the other hand. Um, Netanyahu's ultra-right-wing cabinet colleagues are saying if he does anything other than continue the war on the current basis of, quote, destroying Hamas, they're going to bring the government down. Um, Whether they're bluffing or not, you know, these people are unpredictable. So the answer is I have no idea what's going on. (laughs) Um, Rebecca... Don't you think also one of the problems from the point of view of, of those trying to bring these two mutually... I mean, talk about mutual incomprehension. Um, One of the problems is the Israelis actually don't seem to care about what the international community thinks of them. They certainly seem to care either less than they have in previous incursions into Gaza. I think that you, you... Well, you're right. I think what's happening in Israel, and it's a country I have some knowledge of, is that we've now got a government, or they now have got a government unlike any they've had in the past. So in the past, they Mm. did care. Netanyahu is a man who has no actual politics other than Netanyahu. So he is now singing from the songbook that has been written by the ultra-right, and therefore he doesn't care about international opinion. But the vast majority of the Israeli political class, including most of Likud, his party, do realise... And my own belief is that the only way this is going to be tweet moved forward is if America and the, in 
Joe Biden tweaks and just pulls because without American military support, let alone diplomatic support, they are under real pressure. But Biden is caught in a trap. On the one hand, many of the Democratic traditional voters support Israel as a matter of faith. But on the other hand, the young voters in particular, and particularly independents, are very angry at Israeli activity in Gaza and could refuse to vote for Biden. So he's caught in, the, in a dilemma, but he could actually do what's right um, which would make, rather than what is politically necessary. And Rebecca, is part of the problem here, though, and it is a multi-layered problem, but is part of it that no one's entirely sure when they attempt to talk to Hamas who they are talking to? It is Ismail Hanya, the nominal leader of the organisation who has been for many years exiled in five-star luxury in Qatar, who is supposed to be poring over the details of this, but there's also been fairly solid reporting that he was as surprised by what happened on October the 7th as anybody else. Yeah, this is this is uh, inevitably going to be the case. Um, we have met people in Hamas vowing to do October the seventh again and again and again, and it's really hard. And, and of course, also sending missiles into Israel mm-hmm. on, a, on quite regularly, and it's really hard to see how any Israeli government is going to compromise in the face of that. But could I take a step back and look more generally at how you make? peace negotiations work. Sure. A friend of mine um, is a former IRA bomber who spent eight years in the maze um, uh, for trying to blow up something and is now a peace campaigner. And he has spent his years since trying to bring, (laughs) bring people to negotiate. And he always says there are three preconditions for this. One is that one of the sides has to suffer enough that they are ready to give up. That's pretty important. Another is that peace has to be the best possible outcome on offer to the people sitting around the table. In other words, the international community has to make it unpleasant enough for all the, the parties to this the conflict that, that actually getting around a table is the best thing on offer. And then another thing that helps is if one of the sides begins to lose legitimacy in the eyes of its own people. So you think back to the United States in the Vietnam War. They had lost an awful lot of legitimacy in the eyes of their own people. And if we look at this situation, uh, you know, it breaks my heart to say it, but I don't think any of those three conditions have been met. Yet. Yet. I mean, long term... The Israeli public at the moment is very ambiguous. On the other one hand, they hate Netanyahu, mm-hmm. but equally, they are still solid on this, for me, completely unattainable war aim of, quote, destroying Hamas. They are solid. But equally, they are very angry with Netanyahu, A, for allowing it to happen, and B, for doing little, if anything, to get the hostages released. So Israeli public opinion, once if it turned against enough is enough, if it demanded a ceasefire, I think Netanyahu would be vulnerable. Public opinion in, in Gaza is more problematic, although there are signs of disaffection with Hamas. People are beginning to speak out, recognising that actually, although the Israelis are doing the bombing, the damn thing began let's not go back to 1948, but October the 7th will do. The damn thing began with them. But you're right, this is not immediately going to happen. It's very bleak, the outlook. 
Indeed so. But we turn now to Rome, where Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney has convened a summit with leaders and all representatives of 45 African countries, whom Maloney has gathered to pitch a new model of mutually beneficial partnership. Maloney's hard-right coalition was elected largely on the basis of promises to take a hard line on boat-borne migrants crossing the Mediterranean, a disproportionate number of whom splash ashore in Italy. Maloney's grand design is essentially economic cooperation, which will help African countries become sufficiently prosperous that nobody actually wants to leave them. Um, Rebecca, first of all, Africa has obviously learned to be suspicious of Europeans bearing gifts, and, and quite properly so. Is this actually different? No, this is a farce. This is this meeting was all about the European elections, which are going to happen in May. Indeed. Because an awful lot of the, the, the European people, uh, parties fighting these elections are terrified of the far right who are weaponizing migration. Uh, it's also a farce because uh, if you look at the African leaders who turned up, um, they were there, and I know this sounds cynical, but they were there because they were getting a nice weekend in Rome with all expenses paid. These are the kind of leaders who are pretty much indifferent to the welfare of their civilians um, at best. And at worst, they like to, they, it is in their self-interest to keep their populations frightened and ignorant and hungry. Uh, so, And also, of course, I hate to say this, but... You know, there is a faulty analysis at the heart of this, which is that if you put economic stimulus into an African country, everybody will decide to stay, when actually the evidence is that the more prosperous they become, the more people have the money with which to migrate, because they fundamentally don't see a future in their countries, and they're right not to see a future there. So a family, you know, if if a family is beginning to benefit and get a little bit more money, they will pool together and they will send the oldest son off to migrate to Europe. Can I, can I just ask, Rebecca, why, though, has the Chinese intervention or investment, call it would like, in Africa seemingly helped economic development, albeit at a cost in terms of indebtedness to China. Helped too. Helped too. Helped infrastructure. I mean, one thinks of the Tanza, the developments on the railways and the ports. So, all right, bear with me. Superficially, when I have been in sub-Saharan Africa, one sees Chinese infrastructure projects. Are they not helping anybody? These, it's not aid. Okay, governments are going into vast amounts of debt to pay quite often for white elephants or for railway lines that go from the mine to the port and don't actually benefit anyone else. I would be very enthusiastic about China's involvement if I had seen real, you know, real examples of Chinese training local Africans with a skill uh, or, for instance, you know, helping them build factories that were going to manufacture things so that instead of just taking minerals and taking them to China, Africans were actually processing minerals or making things. But as in my experience, this is not happening. It's just building up vast amounts of debt. But is there, in theory, uh, something to what Maloney was saying, Rebecca? Because her, her line is essentially that, uh, you know, hard-headed 
self-interested even economic uh, propositions will work better for Africa than aid ever has. To quote Maloney, she says, a cooperation among equals far from any predatory imposition or charitable stance towards Africa. I mean, that's not a terrible idea in theory. Right, but your, but your theory depends on having African leaders who give a damn about mm. their own people rather than just self-enrichment. And, you know, unfortunately, you look around the continent and there's not an awful lot of that happening. Also, I you know, it doesn't need democracy, but it does need transparency and accountability in some form. And it, it requires um, an educated middle class uh, who are a civic society, civil society, who are prepared to hold their leaders accountable and make sure that there are benefits and that there is trickle down. And tragically, that is not present in most African countries. Um, Ivor, Maloney did also appear to recognise that, you know, Africa would have its reasons for being a bit cagey about propositions emanating from Europe for economic cooperation. Does, does Italy, of all European countries, conceivably have an advantage here in that in terms of being an imperial power in Africa, which it was, it was a, a relatively hapless and disorganised one? I was always reminded, I, I worked in Rome for a couple of years, and I always remember when I was particularly, I was working my, with my cameraman, particularly cross with my cameraman who'd turned up sort of an hour late for a demonstration which had finished and I'd say why have you and he'd say Siamo Africani we're Africans and and he would say Rome is closer to Africa than it is to Milan um, and that that meant I, there's a certain southern Italian sense of am I being romantic here identity with northern Africa which is different from French or Spanish or German attitudes to Africa. I'm sorry, I really take exception with the idea that the Italians were somehow more gentle. Um, what about Abyssinia? What about the bombing of civilians from the air? Um, systematic bombing of civilians in, in what was Abyssinia is now Ethiopia, Eritrea, by the Italians. What about their treatment of people in Libya? The truth is we just don't know that much about it. It's not broadcast as much as, for instance, you know, the terrible things that the Belgians did in the Congo or the British did in their in their colonies or the Germans. But just finally and quickly on this one, Rebecca, is there any reason at all to expect that this, this idea of Maloney's is going to go anywhere? Oh, yeah, uh, because there is European self-interest in stopping migration. And so, you know, they've already tried to work with Libya and Tunisia and Sudan in, in paying them vast amounts of money to stop migrants getting to the coast of the Mediterranean. And the result has been huge slave camps which are still in existence and which to which we turn a blind eye. So that's, that's what's going to happen, just more of that. Well, to the United States now, of whose election year nonsense we must endure another 279 days as of this broadcast. It is apparently the case that popular warbler Taylor Swift is likely to become a factor, either through a tacit or explicit endorsement of President Joe Biden, or as the lead character in a developing Trumpist conspiracy theory that she and her present paramour, Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey, are pawns in a World Economic Forum to rig... Cons- 
conspiracy to rig the Super Bowl and somehow make all America's youth gay communists or something. Yes, it seems that American conservatives are looking at Taylor Swift and thinking, I knew you were trouble, there will be bad blood between her and Republicans, will she be able to shake it off, etc. Those are all cunning plays on Taylor Swift song titles. Here is Fox News having one of its normal ones. I really want to underscore what you said in the intro, that a single post of hers led to 35,000 new registrants. That's a whopping amount of power. That's arguably more power than the president. Does, does a president's post have that kind of impact? And remember in December when he thrung, swung through South Carolina, uh, Southern California, his campaign, this is Biden, the president's campaign carved out time to meet with influencers. He wanted to make sure that they knew exactly what they were posting and that led to a bunch of TikToks. Has he gone to East Palestine yet? He hasn't. So this is a president who prioritizes and protects time with young influential groups and TikTokers because that's important to him because of the harness attached to it. Taylor Swift's cat is valued, one of them is valued at $97 million because of its Instagram impact. Her cat? Her cat. Mm -hmm. Because of its Instagram impact. And so this scene, you know, it's, it's, it's like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. But the reality is, again, that's, that's persuadable power. And this administration is locked dead set on harnessing that. So when you put it against that landscape, I think the lesson here is that it matters. This administration knows it. It's sad that they prioritize that over average normal Americans who need help that they promised to visit, like again, those in East Palestine, and also GOP, get your act together. Do the same thing somehow. She's probably still going. Um, (laughs) Ivor, how have... Or how has conservative America arrived at a point where it, it, the Republican Party, thinks an American football player and a country singer are the bad guys? Well, I mean, to try and be rational about American politics at this moment in time is an exercise of the impossible. Um, we're, we're dealing with very in very bizarre times. I think the general point about the extent to which influence, influence, well, influences has a very specific meaning, but celebs... Mm. Political parties have been dragging out celebs and seeking their approval for men way before the internet. Um, and the, there is, the research is, to say the least, inconclusive as to whether it has any impact whatsoever. I would say research is non-existent. You cannot prove cause-effect relationships in those circumstances, whatever people say. But coming back to Taylor Swift, I find it particularly bizarre that this issue comes up within days of the internet bit drowning in deep fake videos of Taylor Swift, allegedly but not really, having having sexual activities that everybody was watching. Um, whether the Democrats thought that was a particularly good idea, because I'm wondering where this story comes from. She certainly has not come out publicly um, and it seems more like the Republicans trying to preempt her before the Democrats can make use of her but whether it amounts to a hill of beans when it comes to the vote I don't know and I doubt. Um, Rebecca I for one am extremely excited to see where this theory that the whole Super Bowl has been rigged in advance by the World Economic Forum uh, to tip the election to Joe Biden goes and I would note to our listeners that if it is indeed the case that the whole thing has been stitched up by lizard people from a parallel dimension plotting in a room somewhere beneath a mountain in Davos. The fact that you can still get five to four on the Chiefs in the Super Bowl strikes me as absolutely outstanding value. 
But are they pedophiles? You've got to remember the, the, the whole thing about the pizza shop in Washington and Hillary Clinton. I, anyway, I'm, I'm not sure on. how the pizza shop actually ties Mo- into this. I'm sure someone will let us know. <laughs> Moving on, though, I do actually take... Uh, I, I don't agree that the celebs don't have an influence or rather that we can't measure it. What we do know is that if celebrities tell young people to register to vote, mm-hmm. it does have an impact. And that's really important. And let's hope the Democrats have the wit on election day to, to roll out the celebs to say, you registered now, actually actually vote. Um, what, one other impact that, that these celebrities do have is on the base. Because, you know, if, if you are a young person working hard for the Democratic Party and you're invited to come and listen to Bruce Springsteen playing, that is great for morale. And frankly, they're going to need it this time. I mean, does it often come down to the fact, either that the, it's the politicians themselves who enjoy being seen in the company uh, of the famous and the glamorous without it necessarily actually doing them any good? Well, that was clearly Bill Clinton's shtick. He loved being in, in, in uh, hobnobbing with the, the, I was going to say the great and the good, but certainly the great. Um, yeah, I think politicians, I mean, thinking in, in, the, in the relevance of into the UK with Tony Blair and uh, Cool Britannia in 1997, where he invited lots of celebrities to Downing Street was something he clearly enjoyed. And maybe I'm being a bit of a, a stick in the mud. I, I do think influencers clearly can influence people to do very specific things commercially. I mean, advertisers, brands now spend, I'm going to generalise here, but in general, more money is now being spent on influencers than traditional advertising. That clearly is a powerful impact. Whether it works politically, yeah, I think Rebecca's right in terms of you could see an increase in registration following Taylor Swift's intervention. But whether it actually works in terms of the vote... Who knows? And just to go back to your point, um, Rebecca, about how they can be possibly meaningful advocates in a particular cause, if not necessarily inspiring people to vote one way or the other, is, is that something you've seen in your, your own charity work, that if you put a well-known face out in front of something, people will pay attention? Oh, yeah. And every NGO I know, you know, they waste an enormous amount of time trying to get <laughs> celebrities. And the, the trouble is there are so many barriers between you you know, or me, a nobody, trying to get to George Clooney, for instance, that it, it's impossible. But I, I was, I would make the point that um, celebrities actually have their greatest impact on on causes and campaigns rather than party politics. And if you look at, for instance, Marcus Rashford, I would mm. argue that he has had more impact on changing British government policy than the Labour Party has in the past 13 years. You think of Joanna Lumley and her campaign for the Gurkhas, uh, Princess Diana on landmines, uh, Angelina Jolie on um, sexual and gender-based violence. You know, they did a fantastic job and they reached the parts that long-winded, pious politicians could not reach. I suppose the difference in terms of voting is that when people are making voting decisions, there are so many influences, so to speak, raining down on them, whether it's the parties campaigning, whether it's the media, whether it's the neighbours or whether it's social media, that the voice of a celebrity, okay, is a factor, but it's difficult to disentangle. But the examples you mention 
clearly one can see a relationship. Um, and so I do think uh, voting is different from signing up to a campaign, going on a march or whatever. I have one last thought on that, and that was if you look back at the Brexit campaign, one of the most stupid things that the Remain people did was to use corporate fat cats who basically talked about why they wanted to be in Europe because they'd become wealthier. And they, what they should have done was use footballers, you know, it, and sports people or, or veterans who'd fought in the last war. Well, to the 2024 Olympic city of Paris, where it would appear the citizens are to be deprived of one of their principal joys in life, i.e. pretending they can't speak English when asked for directions by tourists. During the Games, more than 3,000 agents equipped with AI-supported translation devices will roam Paris's public transport system ready to respond to inquiries with helpful answers in 16 different languages, rather than the traditional shrug and muttered Gallic imprecation. It is apparently hoped that this service will be maintained even after the Olympic flame is doused. Um, Ivor, are you fans? Are you a fan of this? I do have... Are they making it too easy? Well, there is... I'm going to be contradictory here. Go on. Um, There is a certain Gallic charm to the Parisians' rudeness, which a little bit of me would be sad. No, I'm a big fan of it. It's part of the experience. Um, And and I I do find, actually, that if you speak loudly, it works, but speaking French is more helpful. Um, This this has been the English approach for for centuries immemorial, Ivor. Travel abroad and yell at them in English. And it works. No, it didn't work. (laughs) Seriously, I think this is a very nice idea in theory. But I strain, you know, when I think of going into the Paris metro in the Russia and Les Halles or some major intersection and asking some harassed man at the... the, um, gates the direct which which line for the eiffel tower uh, the idea of him taking out his ai gadget uh, just uh, dream on monsieur monsieur, monsieur parisian olympic <coughs> it ain't gonna happen but, but on a practical note um rebecca is do as we understand what they what these agents will be brandishing on the metro do they do anything that a smartphone cannot well i, I was going to say i um i hope they do um but I, I was going to say, I hope that the, these, this AI, the AI translations are sophisticated enough to be able to distinguish between, for instance, Mexican Spanish and Castilian Spanish. And I recall a time in Costa Rica when my husband was ordering a meal and he intended to say, my wife will have such and such. What he actually said, (laughs) according to the Mexicans, was my unmarried whore will have such and such. Um, I I did want to actually ask you, uh, as a partial answer to my final question, Rebecca, whether either of you have especially fond memories of travelling in the phrase Facebook era. I once ended up on a train in Bulgaria going in completely the opposite direction to the one I had intended to take and ended up at a railway siding on Bulgaria's border with Serbia. Uh, the good news was that the train driver grudgingly, actually not grudgingly, quite don't know why I said grudgingly, he was entirely cheerful about it, not only gave me a lift back to Sofia, but let me sit in the locomotive. So that actually worked out quite well. Uh, Ivor, did you ever have any phrase-book-related mishaps? Well, the opposite, really. I remember going to see a British consul in somewhere in Spain, in Granada or whatever, and um, I'd lost my passport or something, and I knocked on the door, and the maid answered, who clearly in textbook English said... The vice consul is feeding his chickens. <laughs> he, he may have been. 
I've, I've no doubt. And I just thought that she had perfectly remembered this phrase. But when I then went on and said, when would he be free? That had gone beyond the, the textbook of, to which I got no answer. Ivor Gaber and Rebecca Tinsley, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, live music. It is nearly a quarter of a century since Blackberry Smoke first convened in Atlanta. In the time since, they have assembled a hefty canon of impeccable southern rock, a form which sounds no less vital in their hands than it did when pioneered by their obvious inspirations, Leonard Skinner, the Marshall Tucker Band and the Allman Brothers. Charlie Starr and Paul Jackson from Blackberry Smoke visited Midori House early Earlier, before they played us a song from their new album, I began by asking if they'd ever felt any temptation to rebel against the musical heritage of their native Georgia. I don't think so. I think it's the music that it's not really as simply put as just to me as Southern rock, because mm. we grew up with not only the Allman Brothers and Leonard Skinner and the Marshall Tucker Band, but Aerosmith and Van Halen and Led yeah. Zeppelin and yeah, all that stuff too. And the Rolling Stones. And the Rolling Stones may play a bigger part in a lot of these songs than even the Allman Brothers Band because they were just, the Stones and the Beatles were more of the rock and roll template for loud guitars and bass and drums. And even if you listen to Honky Tonk Women, which was 1969, which (laughs) predates, well, it doesn't predate the Brothers' first album by much, but it's more akin to what we do than maybe Whipping Post. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. It's a... I've always thought that Honky Tonk Women was a country song with loud guitars. <laughs> Does it feel like, nevertheless, that when, when you grow up with that and around that, that there is something in the water in Georgia and the South that the music does just sound different? Yeah, somebody, somebody said to me years ago, well, the question was put that, why is it always, you know, Southern music that has this kind of fingerprint? Mm. I heard another fella say, it's because of the river. It's because of the many rivers that all these music, all this music is coming up out of the mud of all these different rivers of the, the Mississippi and the Chattahoochee and even in Liverpool, right by the river. Yeah. Is there, though, uh, just thinking about your previous album and especially the title track, You Hear Georgia, there was, there was something kind of defensive about it. You were confronting the assumptions that people often make about the music and the people who make it. Well, that, that song specifically was about that subject mm. yeah and it was it was a bit defensive and it came it came literally from i was watching television having coffee one morning and i saw a guy on the news and he was very he had a very pronounced southern accent and mm. he was talking about something very important but he had a drawl and i thought i wonder how many people are around the world are not hearing what he's saying, saying but how he's, how he's saying, saying it yeah and i thought and that will be lost on a lot of people because his point might be lost on a lot of people because of his so that's literally what that song's about. It's not really even about the state or the city of Atlanta. It's about that dude's accent. That dude's accent, yeah. <laughs> is that something you became conscious of, though, the more that you traveled? I know this is a, a, a thought that gets explored at much greater length by drive-by truckers, for example. Patterson Hood, the singer of which has been a reasonably frequent guest on Monocle Radio. But there's a line in one of their songs about how it's always easier to to sketch the devil with a southern accent. It is, and it's fun. <laughs> and, and Hollywood's really good at it. They always have been. I don't know. I mean, before we started to travel, I even had my own mental picture, if you will, or this little movie in my mind about the way things are around mm. the world. And as soon as we started to travel, I was like, oh, it's not at all like I thought that yes, it was. Um, people really are no different the world over. And I love the different accents and the different 
inflections and, and its personality, you know. There's a great book by Charles Steinbeck called Travels with Charlie, and he talks about how television changed the landscape when it comes to when people started hearing people speak a certain way via media, mm. whether it be the radio or television, it all started to kind of go away, started to get watered down, so to speak. Sorry, I'm getting deep. This is <laughs> Way deep. But, but I, I love it. I think it's beautiful. I love to go way down home, you know, and listen to people speak the way my grandparents did, which yeah. is, it's beautiful. Your new album, or imminent album, is Be Right Here. You're going to play the single from it. Just finally introduce the song, if you would. The song is called Azalea, and uh, it's a song about fatherhood, really. Azalea, do you hear those voices calling for you? Do they tell you what you need to know? Do they point you to the way back home? It might not seem the same since you've been grown. Everything looks withered to the bone. But time will bring the rain. You can bloom again the same. Half the learning's in the leaving. That's the only out there maybe this leads nowhere home will always be right here Azalea life ain't always kind enough to warn ya your heart ain't the same as California Getting by it don't mean getting strong Coming back don't mean you're leaving here was wrong Sorry ain't the same as moving on Even when you pray, you don't always get your way Half the learning's in the leaving That's the only thing we fear Maybe it's not out there Maybe this leads nowhere Home will always be right Kiss the wind and hope that it will find you Remember when you fall You can't outrun it all Half the learning's in the leaving That's the only thing we fear Maybe it's not out there Maybe this leads nowhere Home 
That was Blackberry Smoke with Azalea. Their new album, Be Right Here, is out on February 16th and may well be their best yet. They are on tour in the United States starting February 15th. You can find all the details at blackberrysmoke.com. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Ivor Gaber and Rebecca Tinsley. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Thank you.